You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And if you are new to the show, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. Even though we are primarily discussing episode four, Effects of External Conditions, we will be discussing it in the context of the entire first season. So if you have not seen the first 10 episodes, beware that there are spoilers ahead. And as Stephanie just mentioned, we are talking about Effects of External Conditions, which is like quite the episode. We really get a lot of Helena for the first time. We... (laughs) I think we have the most incidences of clones pretending to be other clones in this episode. I think you're right. I was, I was noticing that trend as well. And I was trying to think about if it ever happened with quite that frequency in a different episode. And I don't think it does because we have in this episode, we have Sarah pretending to be Beth and then we have Helena pretending to be Sarah pretending to be Beth. (laughs) And we could, we could argue that Helena is just pretending to be Beth, but really at this point, since she knows that Sarah's pretending to be Beth, yeah, she's pretending to be Sarah to be pretending to be Beth. Yes. Just to confuse us. Yes. When talking about it. And then, of course, the, we have Allison pretending to be Sarah. Indeed, we do. And I mean, Sarah as Beth is nothing new, of course, but. Though. Yeah. Okay, so Sarah as Beth is nothing new, but there's this weird line in this episode that it's never really made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Because toward the beginning, you know, Felix and Sarah are talking over, you know, video chat, Skype, whatever, with Kasima. And Sarah says, you know, the only way I can get that information is to keep being a cop. And, and Felix says, no. I think he says impersonating a dead cop is like a whole other crime. And that line's really weird to me because it makes it sound like Sarah is doing something new when, in fact, she's been impersonating a dead cop for the past three episodes. So what do you think that line is about? I don't think it's anything new about what Sarah is doing. I think it's just that he can't believe that she's going to keep doing it. That's fair. What is, what is the question? I'm confused. <laughs> well, I I am too because he says the way he says it. He's like he says impersonating a, co- a crop, not a crop. He's not he's not pretending <laughs> to be corn. Um, <laughs> Fields of wheat, <laughs> soy. <laughs> okay, so Felix says impersonating a dead cop. That's like a whole new crime, and that line. It just doesn't make any sense because it implies that they either just found out that Beth is dead, like Sarah thought she was impersonating a live cop this entire time, which is not true, or it makes it sound like Sarah's about to do something new. I just think it's a very strange line and it doesn't really make sense to me. See, I don't think so. I I never took it that way. I think it was just talking about it as a new crime because like that's it's like a it's like doubling down on deception there. It's not just that she's impersonating a cop. She's impersonating a cop whose death they've essentially concealed. So I I think mostly to me, that line is to clue in the audience that that's what's going on if there are any new viewers. Yes, I think you're right. I think it's probably because there's a couple of lines in the episode, which are clearly sort of in case you're just tuning in, this is trying to help you catch up a little bit. But that one, I think, is bonus exposition. Exactly. I mean, and and as exposition goes, they do a pretty good job of not making it too clunky. But that line is just sort of weird to me as somebody who's been watching from the beginning. I'm like, what are you talking about, Felix? She's been doing this for three episodes. Okay, so Helena as Sarah as Beth. Here's my question. Why did nobody at the police station 
give it a second thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because even if they, even if it, it it's legitimate it, that it wouldn't occur to, occur to them, oh, that's a clone. Why did it not occur to anybody that Beth is acting really freaking weird? I mean, granted, and that they just saw her ten minutes ago, and she wasn't dressed like that or acting that way, or yeah. didn't look so. Uh, it's not bloodshot eyes, but you know the. <laughs> she looks terrible. She looks like she she, she looks sickly is bleeding out. She <laughs> she looks bad, <laughs> and Helena is not nearly as good at concealing her accent as Sarah is. And so she sounds, when she tells the two police officers to get out, she clearly has a bit of a Russian accent going on there. Same with, with later Ukrainian, on. Ukrainian, but yeah. Ukrainian, yeah. Same, same later on the phone with, with Paul. She manages an, a, a decent detective child's, but then she's like, hello, Paul. You know, she, her, her, her accent comes out. But then I start wondering, like, what was Beth like when she was, like, really doped up on whatever drug she was taking? See, that's my thing. Like, even if it didn't occur to them, hey, clone, maybe it should have occurred to somebody, hey, Beth is, is, you know, doped up on painkillers again, something? I don't know. Well, that's what I'm saying. Maybe maybe they didn't know that. I mean, why would they think clone? I mean, nobody should be. No. But, you know, why would they not be questioning what on earth is going on with Beth? Because... A, mm-hmm. she wasn't acting like that half an hour ago when I, you know, saw her in the other room. And, you know, she wasn't dressed like that. And it's weird. Like, did she go change clothes and get really, really wasted in the women's room? Like, what happened? You know? Yeah. It would have been one thing if she had only interacted with officers we'd never seen before. But she and Raj have a little exchange. Hi, Raj. I like you. And Raj... <laughs> Once again, been- poor gullible Raj is just... <laughs> right? Kind of like- <laughs> like whoa have have a rough night beth mm-hmm. <laughs> you idiot yeah which i guess is supposed to imply that he hadn't seen her before that but still it's like how did the, how did nobody get sort of alerted by her behavior because she's in they're in like an open plan office she doesn't have any walls around her desk how did they not see her scratching out paul's eyes and leaving a picture of maggie chen on the the photo there it just is is a little suspect Right. That was another thing is like, yeah, shoving the, the muffin in her face. <laughs> oh, the muffin. That is a, a great Helena moment with the muffin. It is. You've heard the story about the muffin, right? They. I, I think I have, but go ahead and okay. tell me again. I like stories. I think it was uh, Graham Manson was saying something about how he couldn't even remember if it was in the script or if it was just something that Tatiana did. But they loved it. They loved the just like grabbing the muffin and ha- jamming half of it in her face. And and then he said when they got to editing, they almost lost the the muffin moment. And apparently they went back and forth on it a little bit. But he, he said he really fought for it to, to keep it in. So it stayed in. It is such a great character moment, though. It is. It is. Our first kind of hint of, of Helena's eating habits. <laughs> Which is such a defining thing, too, for Helena. So... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so glad they kept it in, especially since it is the first full episode with her in it. Sort of a, a nice establishing thing there. So then we have Allison as Sarah, and that's some 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 great stuff right there. <laughs> <laughs> Allison pretending to be Sarah. I must admit, by by the end of the visit, she does a decent Sarah at, at, when they're in the doorway. Indeed. I, I was fairly impressed with Allison in that moment. 
I was going to say she's she's overly reliant on certain distinctive behaviors to make sure that she's really clear that she's being Sarah, like the leaning against the wall and kind of this thing she does with her mouth. So it's still not quite it's still off enough that it's still Allison pretending to be Sarah. But she it's a decent Sarah. I will give her that. Right. Like, it's very distinctly trying too hard to be super casual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or something, if that makes any sense at all. But, right. Well, I mean, as Felix says, she's over-slouching, you yes. know? <laughs> and I, I love Allison's over-slouch. I, I love it. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And I, I, I really like the moment before when Mrs. S is, like, calling Kira down the stairs and... Allison sitting on the couch and Felix is standing up next to her and he kind of like gives her a little correction as to how she should hold her arm or something like that. And Allison pops out very clearly for just a moment is like, you know, <laughs> does this really kind of enthusiastic little nod at him. Uh, and I mean, Kira's skepticism to this whole thing is pretty much my favorite thing ever. She, Kira, Kira she like hilarious. crosses her arms and she's just kind of like, really? <laughs> Where's my mom? <laughs> I am not buying any of this. Nor should she. No. No. But I feel like this is a pretty good little episode for Allison. She gets a nice little storyline here. And I think we really see her opinion of Sarah kind of evolve. Like, I, I, she seems, like, genuinely concerned about Sarah when Felix shows up at her house. It's, I think it's very sweet the way she says, what happened? Is she okay? You know, it, you, it's like Allison is really sort of taking Sarah into clone club at this point, I think. Right. And as we talked about last week, you know, where Sarah had the really big arc of sort of maturing last episode, I, I think in this episode, we really get an arc with Allison sort of coming to understand Sarah because at the beginning she's sort of, you know, Sarah brings her the money and Allison still seems kind of iffy about Sarah. But as soon as she learns that Sarah also has a child, you can sort of see her, I guess, opening up a little bit just because they finally have some sort of common ground, I think mm -hmm. is probably what it really is. And and yeah, when Felix comes to see her later and, and they have the moment she's concerned about, Sarah. And then, of course, she's sort of judgy about the fact that Sarah needs Allison to cover for her with Mrs. S and Kira. But then, you know, Felix lays it out for her that Sarah's out there protecting all of you. Can't you do this one thing so that she can do that so you can be safe with your kids? You know, that whole that whole scene I really appreciated. And I think, of course, having Allison actually go into essentially Sarah's family's home, I think that really opened up that relationship further, or at least potentially, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The the understanding is, right. is better now. Right. She can see the type of relationship that Sarah has with her maternal figure, as well as the relationship that Sarah has with her daughter. Because even though Sarah's been gone for a while... Kira, Kira clearly wants to see her mom. She's happy, you know, and they, they have these little rituals. And Sarah's not like, Sarah isn't, the, isn't not the best mother, obviously, but she's not a terrible mother. She, I think the what we see from Kira in this episode reveals to Allison that Kira really loves Sarah. Right. It's kind of, you know, yeah, Sarah's sort of messed some things up, but it's that doesn't mean it's not a loving relationship. Right. One of my other favorite Allison as Sarah moments 
or, or really not quite Allison and Sarah, but as they're leaving, mm. <laughs> this is my one of my other favorite things. Allison and Felix are walking along the sidewalk out of Mrs. S's house. As soon as they turn that corner onto the sidewalk, like immediately Allison becomes Allison again. Mm-hmm. And I love it. It's so yeah. great because her, her posture completely changes. And she, I mean, walking out of the house, she essentially looks like Sarah. You know, she, she's, she's dressed like Sarah. She's but. sort of, yeah, I mean, it's an oversold version of Sarah, but it's still more, you know, how Sarah would walk more than how mm-hmm. Allison would walk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, as soon as they turn that corner, the posture completely changes. <laughs> her Her walk changes. It's hilarious. So further proof that Tatiana is a genius. She is. So that's really the something to appreciate about Tatiana Maslany is not only are we getting to see her have to play seven different characters, but she has to play various iterations upon one of those characters pretending to be another character. And that is, it really takes such a level of acting skill. Because since she herself is plays both characters, it would be easy for her to just slip into Kasima. If, if it's like Allison trying to be Kasima, it'd be easy for her to just slip into being Kasima because she does play that character as well. So she has to build in a layer of Allison underneath the Kasima so that you know that it's Allison playing Kasima and not just Kasima. I mean, it's just kind of mind boggling to think of the type of details she has to incorporate into sort of her physicality and her speech patterns in order to sell the fact that this is a clone pretending to be another clone not just that other clone. It's mind-boggling. It it is quite nuanced. And she did mention in an interview that, like now, Allison pretending to be Sarah, it's it's not that she's becoming Sarah, it's that she's becoming Allison's idea of Sarah. Right. And I mean, that's, yeah, you really have to know the characters you play, like, inside and out to to do that sort of thing. And it kind of makes my brain hurt to think about it. So, yeah. Like, congratulations, Tatiana Maslany, because, wow. Yeah. And I think she's also mentioned when she's having to do these moments with a clone being another clone. I believe she said that she first sort of gets into character in the kind of the the clone it's supposed to be. So in this case, Allison, and then tackles Allison playing Sarah. So it's it's not the other way around, but she has to get into the Whoever character, whichever clone it's supposed to be, she has to get that physicality, that speech pattern down first before she can add in, okay, and now it's Allison pretending to be Sarah. Yeah, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Since that is the clone that it actually is. Right. So, but, yeah. but, any, but yes, mind-boggling Tatiana Manzlani. Ah, how do you do it? She's magic. Because I got to say, I was one of my favorite episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I got to mention Buffy in like every podcast, apparently. But one of my favorite episodes of, Bu- of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is in season three. It's it's called uh, Doppelgangland. And in it, we have we have Willow, we have Vampire Willow. And then Willow has to pretend to be Vampire Willow. And then at some point, Vampire Willow has to pretend to be Willow. And I was impressed with Allison Hannigan for pulling that episode off so well. And this is just like... 10 times even more complicated than that, it seems. <laughs> that was a good episode. It is a good episode. <laughs> but back to Orphan Black. <laughs> <laughs> is that what we're talking about? Yes, this time it is. 
So in this episode, we have quite a bit of, of clones interacting with children. We have Allison interacting with, with Kira. And then we have Sarah interacting with the little boy at the house that, um, that, that had the, the fortune teller that Helena had left. And the thing that I find really interesting in that moment where Sarah first comes to the little boy after he's pointed her out as, you know, who did the person look like? And he points to, points to Sarah. She comes over to him and tells Art, I'll talk to him. And she kneels down next to the little boy and she drops her Beth voice and talks out of her real Sarah voice and says something to the effect of, it's all right, darling, I'm not her. And I really like that moment because it feels like it's another one of those small places where it they're really demonstrating Sarah's not a horrible person. Like in that moment, she was more concerned about assuring the child that she was not a scary person who might harm him than she was keeping up this artifice, this ruse of being Beth. Right. Well, I think that's sort of, again, reaffirming this notion that Sarah actually is a mother mm-hmm. and knows what it is to talk to a young child who is scared. So, yeah, I appreciate that moment a lot, too. Because she could have just been comforting and kept her Beth voice going, but she didn't. You know, it was like it was important to her to be as genuine and po- as possible in that moment to make sure that the little boy was not afraid of her. Indeed. Well, as we know, her... Her child can see right through that kind of thing. So. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, this that that moment wasn't. Um, it's kind of a an echo to where Allison also drops the act and starts talking plainly to Kara. Of course, you know at that point Kara had had sussed her out. But it's kind of two similar moments with clones and children in the same episode. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting too is with the scene with Helena and the little boy is is kind of interesting to me just because. I mean, watching it the first time, it's terrifying. Oh, it's horrifying. Because you're just kind of, you're watching, you're, what is going to happen to that poor little child? Mm-hmm. And nothing. Nothing. At least nothing beyond the psychological damage that may or may not have <laughs> been done with the crazy angry angel who was bleeding profusely. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, and, and the way that they shoot the, that sequence, it's very much intentionally echoing the way a similar sequence would be shot in a horror film. So it's very much intentionally trying to make you wonder or make you think something horrible is going to happen to this little boy. Oh, well, sure. I mean, it it ends on a shot of them pulling away from, from the door, the closed door with the mm-hmm. light sort of seeping through it with the creepy, creepy music. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're trying to make you worry. They really obviously are. Right. And I, Again, that's one of those things I don't think I've ever watched that with somebody where they're just not completely freaked out in that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, again, it's making you worry. <laughs> and it, I mean, it does. It's its very effective. But no, she made him a toy because she found herself a playmate, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have come to the conclusion, I don't know, I don't really think that Helena would ever purposefully hurt a child. I really yeah, don't think, I don't think so either. I really don't think she would. And I mean clearly she uses the little boy in the circumstance and gives him a very creepy creepy toy. But I just I I I have the impression that that children are very like sacred and very important to Helena and I kind of wonder if that's partially from her association with with the Prolethians because when when Cosima is talking about her knife later on in the 
in the in the episode she talks about how the fish is a symbol of fecundity and fertility and so i wonder if you know children especially naturally born children obviously not clone children are are very sort of important to this organization could be uh, of course i mean part of what they say later in their analysis of of helena not knowing she was helena was that she is sort of childlike of course based yeah. on right so i mean i i think there is a certain i think helena relates to children on a certain level you know mm-hmm. what with her love of sugar and stick figure drawing <laughs> <laughs> but going back to that the, the horrifying opening scene it occurred to me when i was watching it this time that 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 scene's a very creepy echo to where sarah is trying to get ready to pretend to be Beth back in episode one, natural selection, you know, when she's looking in the mirror and putting stuff on and saying, damn right, damn right. We have Helena in this episode also in front of the mirror, but performing horrendous self-surgery on herself, repeating to herself over and over again, what Sarah said to her, you know, back in at the end of episode three, you know, I'm, I'm not Beth. I'm not Beth. You know, I hadn't really thought about it, but it is kind of interesting. It's, it is mirroring that that scene, except it's sort of the reverse of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that was Sarah becoming Beth, and now here's potentially the beginning of the unraveling of that situation. Right. I, I don't know that I would say that Helena's necessarily practicing to pretend to be Sarah or to pretend to be Sarah being Beth, just to make it even the more complicated in that moment. I don't know that that's necessarily her motivation, but it, it very clearly this time around reminded me strongly of Sarah looking in the mirror and practicing talking like Beth in the first episode. Interesting. And I mean, let's talk about the crazy, crazy blood loss. So much blood. Oh, my gosh. I know, right? I mean, because there's the, the trail into the house. Then there's the trail through the house. And then there's all, you know, the bloody rebar in the sink and, I mean, and the gloves and... She's bled, like, four people all over their house. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, because, as I said in some other podcast episode, and I forget which one it was now, like, she's not that big. No. So, <laughs> like, what's the deal here? How... How was she okay? <laughs> well, and... and- you know, we did float a theory about Helena's ability to survive such a traumatic injury when we talked about clone science and positing that perhaps Sarah and Helena and then Kira maybe have some, some super healing abilities of some kind. It is kind of the only thing that makes sense. Besides the fact that it's a TV show and quite honestly, they could make her bleed as much as they want. But Oh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forget. No, but, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's it is significant. I, I do think there's more to it than that. There kinda has to be. Yeah. I mean there there are enough hints that something is going on that yeah. It seems likely that there's something else going on. Right. Yeah, and what else is kind of interesting is that Helena gives the fortune teller to the little boy. They figure out the clue and they go to the place that she'd been staying, and it's an abandoned church, which I don't know that I fully picked up on last time for whatever reason, but... 
I didn't even notice it this time, and I had seen your note about it. So, <laughs> I see. It's like this huge building, like this huge, beautiful building, and there's a statue of a saint in the room that they go into mm. that has the dirty, bloody mattress and all the creepy stick figures that we use for our logo <laughs> on the walls. Though I should say that Chris drew the creepy stick figure in our in our in our logo. That is not a Helena drawing. That is true. It is. It's Chris as Helena doing <laughs> a creepy stick figure drawing. Did you put on a blonde frizzy wig first before you drew it to really get into character? There is no evidence either way. <laughs> I will neither confirm nor deny. No. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish I did now. but Yeah, well. Next time. Indeed. So the thing that really surprised me in a good way about Helena when I saw this episode the first time was how crazy diabolical she was because I knew she was terrifying. You know, we knew that she had sort of the the physical and and sort of tactical abilities to to shoot somebody with a sniper rifle as well as, you know, hunt them down in close contact and try to stab them with a knife. But I was really impressed when she sends Sarah, that that video that she made in the police station, basically confessing as Beth to killing Maggie Chen, I was just thinking, wow, that's really clever. And I was surprised that Helena was quite that clever. And maybe that was not me not thinking enough of her. But that was that was a very impressive tactical maneuver, I thought. Indeed. Yeah. See, that's another one of those moments, though, where I'm just kind of like, does nobody see her doing this? <laughs> right. <laughs> But maybe that's just me. Also, Sarah, before you play a video in the middle of your office with an un mentally unbalanced person in it, maybe you should put it in your headphones. Just a little, little advice. But yeah, I thought I thought this was an interesting look into how Helena knows how to use both psychological sort of warfare as well as being a physical, a physically scary person in her ability to, you know kill people. Willingness and ability to kill people. Mm -hmm. So the big sort of climax of this episode is the confrontation between Sarah and Helena at Maggie Chen's apartments where, you know, Sarah comes in and Helena's standing over under the light with her hands up to the sky. It's, you know, lovely shot of Helena there. And I find that confrontation very interesting. It is, it is the first time, I think of the two times in the first season, where I feel like Sarah puts a chair just a little bit too close to a mentally unbalanced killer, and I don't understand why. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why either. Because I get it. She was kind of weakened at this point, but still, Sniper, Sarah, Sniper clearly has some training there. I, I was kind of worried about her every time she... Every time I watch her do it, I'm just like, why are you doing why that, Why are you Sarah? doing that, Sarah? I know how it ends, but still, I'm... I'm like, concerned That just seems her. like a bad idea. It does. But they have, an, instead of, of something horrible happening to Sarah, as I fear every time, they have a nice little little chat. And I feel like the combination of what Sarah learns about Helena from the psychoanalysis, from the police about Helena being abused as a child, as well as what Kasima suggests through her research of the, of the knife and the tattoo on Maggie Chen that perhaps Helena is part of an organization – Sarah really does in this exchange seem to come to pity Helena. Well, and it's sort of interesting because, you know, Sarah tells her to kneel and she doesn't. So then Sarah 
punches, punches her, her in her rebar wound. And so she's sort of, she's kneeling there. She kind of is groveling, basically, during this conversation with Sarah. And she sort of ends up, like, petting her knee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's It's very odd, this entire exchange they have. Because clearly Sarah came there very concerned about her. I mean, she wouldn't even attempt to go see Kira because she was worried Helena would follow her and hurt her daughter. So I feel like they are they are insinuating that Sarah really came there to take take care of Helena and maybe even kill her if if she has to. So I mean, the fact that she has her gun out from the moment she enters the building, basically. Doesn't she have both the gun and the knife? So she's she's got two weapons on her. She she's clearly ready to defend herself if need be. And she leaves that creepy message to Art. Yep. So it's 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 interesting that she ends up letting Helena run out of the window. And I and I think it's where cuz I again, I feel like she kind of talking to Helena realizing recognizing her as maybe sort of this, an innocent kind of brainwashed person it i think it seems to kind of strike a chord in her but that's i don't know what what is your sense of that exchange yeah i well cuz that's when helena starts talking about you know we have a connection right isn't that mm-hmm. she so, said said that earlier on the phone but then she says it i think again in the apartment but don't you sort of get the impression that maybe sarah starts feeling that too in that moment Helena seems to think so. I don't know. Because well, I just I can't make sense of Sarah letting Helena run out if if she didn't feel that on some level. I mean, I think some of it could be that she's trying to protect Clone Club, but I don't There's more to feel it than like that, it's entirely that. Yeah. Right. Well, before she decides to let Helena go, I think one of the last things she says to Helena is what happened to you, Helena, which is repeated by Kira later in the series in the alleyway. And to me, I to me that indicates that Sarah it kind of dawned on Sarah that Helena was like lied to by this orga- by this organization told she was the original was kind of brainwashed and and damaged. Right. Well, and I mean earlier Sarah had sat in on the meeting at the police station where they were mm-hmm. talking about how it seemed likely that there had been, you know, some abuse or something mm-hmm. in the past, especially since female serial killers or whatever female assassins are so rare. But I, I do think it's my impression, especially this watching it through this time, that Sarah does in this exchange start to feel kind of sorry for Helena. And that's partially why she lets her go as well. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of reasons motivating her letting her go, but I, I think that's part of it. Right. So something else I thought was kind of interesting about Sarah, when they go to Helena's little hideout at the church or whatever it is, as they're walking in, Sarah says, anybody else feel like they have a target on their back? And I think Art kind of gives her a look when she says that. But I think it's kind of, I don't know, I'm I'm intrigued that she even made that comment. Yes, it makes sense to me that she would say that because basically she does and she knows she does. Thoughts? Yeah, I've never really quite understood why she asks them that. If 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 maybe 
maybe we should just rationalize it to the fact that she was feeling nervous about it and kind of needed to say something. But but yeah, I've never quite understood why she asks the crowd that particular question. Right. But I mean, maybe she's just trying to insinuating this building is really sketch. Are we sure we actually want to go in here? <laughs> maybe this is all a huge trap. Entirely possible. I mean, I, I think that is certainly it, it's interpretable as such. But I just always thought that was kind of interesting that she says that because she knows she does, essentially. Right. So and also in that scene, when they're looking at the stick figures, they, of course, have the the main stick figure that has the question mark over the, the head or where the head should be. And they pose the question, is that supposed to be the killer or the next victim? And Sarah very certainly says next victim. She says it sort of definitively. So I was just going to ask you, why do you think Sarah is so sure about that? I'm not, I'm not sure, quite honestly. I, the I, the only thing I can think of is, like you said, she she knows in the back of her head that Helene is after her. And to her, seeing that, she's convinced that it's supposed to be her. It, whether she's right or not, who knows? But I think just in that moment, she's talking out of her, her fear of being Helena's target. Or do we think it could be? Since we know that Helena went back there after she'd been stabbed by the rebar, and I think that question mark was drawn in blood, right? It was, yeah. So maybe that is what it is. Maybe it is supposed to be Sarah because now Helena knows that Sarah isn't Beth. And she indicated that she was curious about her when she called Sarah on the phone. So Right. I mean, basically, she is an unknown. So she would have the question mark over her, so to speak. So maybe that is what it is. I don't Creepy. Th- I don't think it's an unreasonable assumption on Sarah's part, but I, I I agree. The first couple of times I watched it, I wondered why she was why she was exactly so sure. Mm-hmm. It's because they have a connection. <laughs> so there's there, there's kind of a, a a showdown between a couple of guys on this show, which does not happen all that often. But you know, Paul shows up at the at the police station and is trying to drag Sarah out of there. Oh, Paul. <laughs> and Art and Art comes up and, and confronts him about it. And I don't know why, but I absolutely love Sarah's reaction to Paul when when he starts yelling at Art. She just kind of is like, oh, no, don't go there. And it makes me laugh every time. I don't exactly know why. See, to me, that whole scene reads like Sarah trying to stop anybody from saying too much because then her web of lies will fall apart. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which I also kind of enjoy for some reason that she's just like, no, no, let me handle it. Both of you. Yeah, go away. (laughs) Don't stop saying things to each other. (laughs) You're not supposed to know about that. (laughs) Oh, that's, I think that's totally what that reaction is about. But for some reason, I just find that that moment hilarious i don't know why i can't exactly explain it but maybe it's just kind of the panic i can see behind sarah's eyes like oh gosh no 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 please stop don't talk to him so what do we think about how sarah is acting toward paul in this episode i don't know because i mean i guess the the interesting thing to me is that helena sort of sets all this stuff in motion when in her brief time at the police station just like sort of blowing up little little parts of Sarah's life or 
Beth's life, but but break, causing problems for for Sarah really is the goal, of course. Right. Because yeah, she sort of you know makes everything extra complicated with with Paul and sort of by extension with Art. So I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> you didn't answer my question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> don't know how to answer it so i was kind of I, I guess maybe sarah just kind of had to wing it and she wasn't able to plan how to deal with paul but i was surprised how warm i guess she was to paul once they got out of the police station she even you know kisses him like leans in and kisses him first so i i was kind of curious what exactly her tactics were at this point because she at the end of the episode she quits being a police officer. So I'm wondering if she was at this point thinking far ahead as if she was if she was going to be able to like exit from having to interact with Paul as well. Hmm. I really don't know. I sort of found that whole scene with them outside the police station. I just I don't know. I found it kind of odd, I guess. Me too. Paul does give her a, a sort of a, a hint that there's more to him than it than there seems. On, on rewatch, Paul does give her a very kind of knowing look as he walks away from her. Just, you know, notice that. Hmm. I, for some reason, rarely know really what to say about Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're not looking forward to next episode. There's so much Paul in the next episode. <laughs> uh, I also thought it was sort of interesting. Sarah has a line in there. I think it's when she's talking to Kasima, where she says, yeah, I might become an angry angel too, sort of talking about the potential background that Helena had come from. I just thought that was sort of an insightful line, I guess, since we are dealing with nature and nurture. so Right. Which, again, makes me kind of think Sarah was leaning toward having a more kind of nuanced, sympathetic understanding of Helena before she even got to the apartment. She was getting quite a bit of, of information along the way that some twisted stuff had perhaps been been done to Helena. Right. I do appreciate that we're really sort of seeing how compassionate Sarah can be. Because we like Sarah. <laughs> we do like Sarah. How can you not like Sarah? Some people don't because she, you know, steals a dead woman's identity and tries to rob her. So picky. <laughs> <laughs> If that were true of, like, all people being that picky, I would have no friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm concerned about you, but okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have stolen no dead women's identity, I promise. So she says. The other thing about Sarah in this episode, she finally learns why Beth shot Maggie Chen. And I'd kind of forgotten that it took us this long to find that out. I know we're only four episodes in, but still. Just given that Sarah has spent this much time, you know, pretending to be Beth and went through the little hearing and everything and basically had no idea that there was any reason that Beth shot Maggie Chen. I mean, as far as she knew, it was the story that she gave them, you know, but I think it's it's sort of it's a good reveal that it was an intentional move on Beth's part and and that um you know, when she talks to Helena, Helena tells her that Maggie Chen helped create them and then realized the error of her ways and joined the Prolethians. Of course, we didn't know they're 
Prolethians yet. But anyway, I just thought that was sort of sort of interesting. No, I really liked that additional layer to the Maggie Chen storyline. And of course, it invites a whole host of questions about Beth and how she came to find out about Maggie. And because Kasima said she never mentioned anything about Maggie Chen to either her or Allison. So. Right. And, and that's another thing. Like, why, why was Beth being secretive about it? I mean, there's mm-hmm. just, there's a lot of stuff about Beth that remains a mystery to me anyway. Oh, I want to, I want to learn more about Beth. I hope they tell us more about Beth. Apparently at some point they, they plan to. Good. Good. That makes me happy. At least that was the last I heard about it. So apparently, we, we love to get feedback from people. We love it when people send us emails. And apparently, the key to getting people to send us emails is have me complain about art being inconsistent. Because we've gotten an email every week for somebody writing in defense of art. And I think it's fantastic. I love that people are so passionate about this character. And they really want, you know, they're, they're protective of art. And they, they don't like me saying bad things about art. So I'm sorry to those people who who love art and and don't like it when I say not nice things about him. I promise that the the not nice things saying that I that I've been saying about art are going to decrease as I mentioned last episode. <laughs> because I, and I will read directly from my notes. Art's okay in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> He's still a little mood swingy, but I think star- Art starts to work better as a character when he starts having Angie DeAngelis to talk to, because then we get a better sense of his his motivations and his thought processes when he has somebody he can bounce them off of instead of just sort of him going around doing stuff. So I like pretty I like Art pretty well in this episode. He's okay in this episode. <laughs> you can still send us emails defending Art to me. That's fine. I I could take it, but. I just want to put that out there for you art lovers. I think art is okay in this episode. Oh, dear. Yeah, let's talk about Angie DeAngelis because I I rather enjoy Angie DeAngelis in this episode with her her sort of cop swaggeriness that she's, you know, oh, don't don't worry about it. We're going to get him. We're going to get this guy, I think she says. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's kind of like a cop stereotype in the best way possible because she says these lines like you know don't worry we're gonna get him or you know oh, just gotta keep pushing it till it breaks but the way that inga cadronell who plays who plays angie plays this role to me it's that it's not that angie is a stereotype like the character is written as a stereotype it's that angie is just so in love with this idea of what being a police detective should be that she kind of feels like this is the way a police detective acts. And that sort of like explains a lot of her behavior. But I just, I love the enthusiasm that Angie has for being a police detective. I think she's a great character. Yeah. Art's rushing out to go check something. And she's like, she's like, want me to come? Yeah. 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 She's like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She's like, Art, come on, come on, Art. <laughs> she looks after him like kind of a puppy dog. And they, there's also a shot that I, I, it didn't really occur to me until the most recent rewatch when later on in the episode where Art and Sarah are in the, the, I, is she, is he their captain? But they're a superior officer's office. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant. Lieutenant. There's this shot of 
the outside of the office looking in through the window and Angie kind of walks by, walks past the camera and looks over her shoulder back at the door. And it's kind of a little villainous shot. It kind of makes her look like kind of it's setting setting her up to be, I think, kind of an antagonist because she come, becomes something of an antagonist later in the season. Like right now, she's just sort of cop who gets pushed aside for this rookie or whatever. But later on in this season, she kind of can, tries to cause some problems for Art where she rats him out to the lieutenant. I guess I didn't really look at it as being a villainous thing so much as it was sort of being intensely interested in whatever was going on in there. I think it works both ways, though. I, that's it kind it of does. How- I just, I'm just saying I didn't necessarily think of it that way specifically. I right. think it's more just like, I think throughout this whole episode, it's like Angie just wants to be in the middle of whatever's going on. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I agree. But in, on this particular viewing, the way that it was shot, it does kind of have a bit of a, a, a villainous kind of vibe to it, or at least sort of an antagonist. It is kind of a shadowy shot. Exactly. Exactly. And so speaking of Angie, has she has this line, woman on woman means it has to be personal. And of course, she's talking about Helena killing Katya. But I just I thought that was sort of a fascinating line that they threw in there, because to me, it reinforces the clones unique predicament that I mean, that that they're clones. I mean, it's it's deeply personal, but they've never actually met each other. I mean, they're essentially strangers. They're tied together only through genetics, basically. And so it's this weird thing where it's it's personal, but it's not, you know, which I think is sort of a thing that sort of runs through here a little bit through the uh, series. And I think... Have I completely confused you? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And it it reminds me, that comment reminds me of what Kasima says said to Sarah, I believe in the last episode where she talks about how we are your biological imperative now. You need to cooperate with us and, and work with us. And so it's it's these these women who have been drawn together by this very intense situation and it's very personal, but at the same time they don't know each other, especially right now, all that well. So yeah, I think that's definitely something, especially in the early early episodes, a, a little theme that runs throughout them. Right, this whole thing where they sort of don't trust each other, but they kind of have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, because I think we see that also with Allison in this episode, kind of recognizing, okay, I'm tied to this woman who I don't particularly care for because of this crazy situation. I should help her. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this because it's, you know, when it comes to talking about Orphan Black, Orphan Black is such a strongly written show you really have to it's only really these tiny little details that you can kind of criticize but when watching this episode when they're figuring out that the numbers on the fortune teller are addresses and there's only one missing that has doesn't cor- you know correspond with an address they already have the number is something like 1049 or something like that and Angie's got her cell phone out and she says and GPS says there's only one you know street address with that number and I'm like really Really? In all of Toronto, there's only one 1049 whatever? I kind of don't think so. But okay. <laughs> Have you looked it up? Do you know, Stephanie? I don't. I don't. <laughs> so yes, if there are, there are Toronto people 
people from Toronto listening to this episode, email us and tell me I'm wrong. People like doing that. So email <laughs> us. Tell me I'm wrong that there's one 1049 in Toronto, period. <laughs> she could just ask Google, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to ask Google that. Google that. You go into Google Maps and you type in 1049 Toronto. <laughs> I'm guessing. I don't know. I didn't do it, but <laughs> are you doing it now? Yes. <laughs> Toronto, Ontario. Oh, whatever. New Google Maps. I don't care. <laughs> it's funny because I can't see what you're doing. There's a number 1049 University of Toronto, St. George campus. That's the one that comes up. But only one comes up. Well, <laughs> she won't admit it. <laughs> okay, here we go. 1049 Dunbar Road, Toronto, Ontario. 1049 Dunblane Lane, Toronto, Ontario. 1049 Dunbar Road, Toronto, Ontario. 1049 Dunboyne Court, Toronto, Ontario. Maybe there's only one 1049 that has abandoned buildings or in a... In a- because uh, they did say something about how it was like a an area with a lot of squatters. So I'm just saying properties. that was no, super convenient. Uh, they should have made the address longer. If it had been something like six numbers or something like that, maybe I could have bought that. But not 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 a four number designation. Sorry. As you can tell, Stephanie's a pretty nitpicky viewer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Chris is one to talk. <laughs> I was going to say, and as nitpicky as I am, that sort of thing. Doesn't even register with me. <laughs> Apparently. Watch, I'll get an email saying the actual number was 1059 and there's only one of those. <laughs> Just trying to stir up the listenership. I am. I'm on to you. I am. So let's talk about Felix. And one of the great Felix moments is the reveal that he's painting in the nude. Because it's always funny. Do you always find that funny? Do you giggle? A little bit, like silently inside. I, I I do like Felix painting nude as a as a little character moment. It is pretty good because I mean they do the whole scene where you kind of don't know, and then he turns around, <laughs> and then you go, "Oh, hello, Felix's bum." <laughs> if you're and, one to greet bums, I don't yes. know. And this is the second <laughs> Felix bum sighting of the series. Just gonna put that out there. Are you are you keeping a little tally? I am. Next to your desk. Mentally. No, it's just a mental one. Okay. Then the other great uh, Felix moment is his whole sort of storyline where he recruits Allison and plays acting coach to her, telling her she's overslouching and that, no, that it's not, it's not mate. (laughs) It's more like might. Yeah. I I do really like, this is sort of the the beginning of Allison and Felix, because while he babysat for her last episode... They didn't really interact all that much. So this is really the foundation of of Allison and Felix's relationship. And it grows from from here. Yes. I mean, the the last episode that was, you know, Allison was not happy with Felix at all. No, no. <laughs> and he's pretty dismissive of, of her. They, they they barely exchange any dialogue in the in the previous episode. So, right. This is really where they start to have a rapport and you start to realize how fantastic the combination of Felix and Allison is. Do they have a combo name? We should come up with a combo name. Yeah, there's no way to do that. Alex? <laughs> but that just sounds like a name. Uh, Felison? <laughs> yeah, it's just not going to work. Anyway, 
Moving on. Uh, uh, so- soccer toot? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he's an artist slash prostitute slash kind of drug dealer. Uh, anyway. <laughs> See, it's just not going to work out that well. No, no. no. There's not a lot of good portmanteaus going on for, for Felix and Allison. Felison. <laughs> Felison. That's the best we got. But that just kind of sounds sexy. Like, you know, I'm Felison. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Right off the rails this episode. Sorry. So sadly, Kasima does not have a, a huge role in this episode. She's just in a couple of scenes being the smart one, as I as I like to put it. She was gilesing it up with her with her books and her research and and figuring stuff out. And this is where we get a get the first glimpse of Kasima smoking pot. So Yep. And then I always kind of wonder, like, is now really the best time to be doing that? <laughs> Why not? You know, things are just kind of Ridiculous and out of control, so why not? I guess. But she does have a, a my, one of my favorite Kasima lines in this episode where she says, holy watershed. I really like that. I think a lot of people really like that. It's true. If you, if you Google holy watershed, you get a lot of Tumblr pages that come up. <laughs> As with most Kasima quotes, I think. Yeah. Or any of the, uh, you know, the, the quotable ones, I should say. I don't know why this didn't occur to me previously, but on this rewatch... When Allison is chatting with Kira uh, toward the end of their visit and and Kira says, you know, how can you be my Auntie Allison? My mom doesn't have any sisters. And then she says, my mom doesn't even have a mom. And those two lines are kind of interesting, both because, well, first of all, we do we learn eventually that Sarah, in fact, does have a biological sister, you know, beyond the fact that she has clones. Helena is her twin. And then, you know, in the moment when I when I was watching it, I. And I'm sure this is probably the fact that, that Kira knows that Sarah's an orphan. But, you know, she says, my mom doesn't even have a mom, which also suggests that Sarah does not have a mother because she is a clone. And for some reason, that just occurred to me on this rewatch. See, I didn't even really think about it just because, because as you say, Kira knows that Sarah's an orphan, or at least it would seem that way. Because obviously the closest thing she has to a mother is Mrs. S, and she calls Mrs. S, Mrs. S. So I pretty much just took it on that level. So mm-hmm. and I think not that's, to say that it doesn't work on the other level. Exactly. But. And I think that's definitely the level Kira means it on. But at the same time, because, you know, Kira's apparently super perceptive and can heal from being hit by a car, part of me wonders, does she know that her mother's a clone? I don't think she does, but it, it does obviously have a nice double meaning going on there. And we know how our orphan black writers love their lines with their double meanings. Because they like to make us question everything, apparently, upon our 25th rewatch or whatever, whatever number you may be on. So let us know what you thought of effects of external conditions. People can write me another in defense of art. I actually quite enjoy reading them. So send send those my way. Do know that I am reading them. I haven't changed my mind, but I have read them. <laughs> but we would love to, to hear your thoughts about any aspect of this episode, even besides art. 
You can send us those thoughts in a variety of ways. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com. You can send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com, or you can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. You can also catch us on Twitter at TIE Podcast. This week, Helena's fortune teller and the rebar were played by Tatiana Mislani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>